Alex Mosad, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against big tech monopolies. We've obviously got the Joe Rogan Zuckerberg interview. We're going to go over kind of the, the highlight reel and some of the, the, the good clips and basically just a lot of lies uh, that Zuckerberg was spewing to Joe. Um, we've also got interesting news coming out of India showing that Amazon is trailing in India and, and the analyst uh, that published the report is blaming uh, the regulatory environment being unfavorable to Amazon. So uh, let's look at that one. We're going to touch on, you know, uh, Reed Hoffman and blitz scaling. There's an article recently that, that Reed doesn't have any regrets, thinks everything about blitz scaling is just fine and dandy. Uh, so <laughs> let's check that one out. Then Home Depot. Um, Home Depot versus Lowe's, kind of the battle of the two big home improvement retailers, both somewhat recently in the past few weeks announcing earnings. And uh, we've got a little analysis of that. We also got some Y Combinator news where we will close it out. Um, so let's start with, let's start with Amazon in India. This is a story we've covered multiple times on the show. Now you are actually seeing it make its way into their investor, their analyst reports. Now you're actually seeing this impact how the equity analysts uh, think and value Amazon's business in India. So what happened there? If you want the real nuanced detail on all the ways that Amazon blatantly cheated, actually cheated and broke the law, the laws of India, um, that basically regulate, if you are a foreign-owned marketplace company, they said you can't both be a three-piece seller and a one-piece seller. we got a bunch of videos going at length on what those laws are. Um, actually, honestly, very well-crafted to promote local Indian startups to compete against large foreign-owned tech monopolies, something that China... Uh, has mastered to help nurture and protect at the time its fledgling uh, startup community. It's called tech protectionism. Uh, so we've got a bunch of videos actually on the history of this. That's not actually what the report talks about. There's now reports coming out showing hard data that Amazon is trailing to Walmart's Flipkart in India. Uh, this was a $16 billion acquisition. So they bought over 50% of the company, but they had the ability to buy more. They didn't necessarily come out of the gate and buy 100% of the company, as opposed to um, Amazon's effort, which has been more from scratch in India. They've done some smaller acquisitions there over the years, but certainly nothing that is anywhere in the ballpark of tens of billions of dollars uh, with what Walmart did. Walmart did this Flipkart acquisition relatively shortly after they bought Jet.com in the U.S. in 2016 for three, $3.3 billion. So Flipkart acquisition going very well for Walmart. Both of these are technically foreign-owned marketplaces. They both have similar level of scrutiny. You could argue that Flipkart might have slightly favorable relationships with the regulators, given that it... It actually was started as an Indian uh, local marketplace business, uh, as opposed to Amazon, which is more kind of purely foreign, right? And then they're going up against another uh, company called Reliance, which we've also covered many times on the show. And Reliance 
has, has gone after a very aggressive platform business evolution and vision for the company done. We've covered that many times in the show as well. So those are the main big three players and there's recent data here covering how they're doing. So if you look at this chart here, Flipkart slash Walmart has the most GMV at $23 billion, followed by Amazon India, which is 18 to $20 billion. Then in a somewhat distant third, you got Reliance slash Geo, which is $4.6 billion. Reliance is the only one listed, not foreign owned, that has 1P and 3P inventory, right? Now, the other videos we did on Amazon basically showed how Amazon tried to not tried, but actively subverted and cheated to have its own 1P inventory in addition to 3P. But, you know, some interesting things here. Flipkart actually has less products, 150 million versus Amazon's 170. They have less sellers, 450,000 versus Amazon's 700,000. Yet they still have more overall GMV and Amazon is missing out in terms of engagement metrics and download share. Flipkart was the leader during the festival season, capturing a share of 62% while Amazon had a share of 27%, right? So stark contrast. Downloads during the festivals, 50 million downloads for Flipkart versus 43 million for Amazon. So Amazon is, you know, I think blaming regulators and why they are not as successful. Their behavior, however, blatantly and actively subverting the regulators and the laws that India passed to give local players an, a competitive advantage certainly does not help them win uh, or curry any, any trust or favor from the regulators. So honestly, this is, to me, completely deserved for how Amazon has behaved, how those decisions that you can see in our videos went right up to the executive, the C-suite at Amazon. They knew up and down what they were doing. They have no respect for, um, clearly, you know, these local laws and what's appropriate to and how to, how to conduct their business there. And this is also a great example of how to rein in big tech monopolies. And if you are a non-US, you know, or Chinese nation now that has large tech monopolies, or you are a smaller country that has U.S. or Chinese tech monopolies coming into it, how can you give your local tech startup community a competitive advantage? Oh, by doing tech protectionism. These are very nuanced advantages to actually make and pass in a law. And I think it really just goes to show you the level of two things. One, the level of sophistication uh, in the Indian legislature that they would pass something like this, right? To really understand the difference between 1P and 3P. Say, hey, if you're a foreign owned, you know, you got to pick one. You can't do both. The, and then there's other things here that they outline around, uh, you know, payments and uh, ownership of first party sellers, and which was you know, <laughs> some of how Amazon uh, cheated. So I got to give credit to India. I think they've actually done a very good model of balancing having outside tech monopolies come in and 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 uh, there's a lot of foreign money in there investing in investing in Indian startups and then obviously now buying uh, Indian startups. But despite all of that, even giving Reliance these advantages, you're still seeing Walmart own Flipkart 
and Amazon as the top two players. So yes, Amazon would certainly be able to do more and would be able to do to, to perform better. What's one key example of that? This article talks about certain product categories that Amazon is light in. So when you are a marketplace, a key strategy, if you want to expand into new, new categories, product categories, you can buy that inventory as a 1P and then resell it. And you might lose some money buying a bunch of inventory and reselling it. But the point is, you're building that customer behavior, you're building that demand, and then you can more easily recruit other third-party sellers to then sell those, for example, beauty and personal care products. And then over time, you as the marketplace can phase down the amount of 1P product that you're buying. And then, and then now you're able to have more 3P sellers fill the gap and, and, and expand the long tail of products. So by the Indian government taking that mechanism away from foreign-owned marketplaces, they are slowing their ability to grow and giving that advantage to locally owned marketplace competitors. These are great examples of how to rein in big tech and how to do it successfully. This is working. So it's very interesting. You know, everyone has believed that Y Combinator has been run by this guy named Michael Siebel. But now they've announced that this guy, Gary Tan, is going to be the new president and CEO of Y Combinator starting in 2023. But then you, when you read the, the, the press release, it's saying, well, Gary is going to be taking over the role from Jeff Ralston, who has been with YC since 2011. But we've covered Y Combinator multiple times. We have multiple team members that have gone through Y Combinator. No one actually regards Jeff Ralston as the CEO of Y Combinator. It has always been Michael Siebel. And then this article says, well, Michael Siebel was the CEO of Y Combinator's Accelerator up until 2020 when the Accelerator evolved from a more traditional partnership to no longer having multiple CEOs. Then Siebel became managing director of Early Stage. It's an accelerator. So Early Stage is like the whole thing that they do and a group partner. It's just more of, frankly, the stuff that got Y Combinator in the place that it is today which is you just playing funny games. Michael Siebel, we called this on the show, everyone else in Silicon Valley, in the press, oh, yes, Michael, what a great job you're doing. No, we said, you know what? This is the wrong decision. And Michael said, you know, why Combinator shouldn't be an Ivy League school. They should be a state college. And we said, uh, I don't know about that one, Michael going to have to disagree with you. And not only did he decide to make this thing state college, big change, but he decided to make it a state college during COVID when they moved their entire operations to be remote. So they like quintupled in size and went remote. This move, this guy Gary, isn't coming in. Now, none of this is coincidence. This is happening because Michael was wrong. And I think you're already starting to see, we've done some videos on this already, that quality and the interest from investors to fund all these startups, their ability to, to stand out to the crowd of investors and just the matchmaking and the process and the quality and the nurturing and all that stuff is just not the same. You've gotten way bigger and you've gotten remote. 
it's got to change. And I think what you see, what I predict, what Gary will do is bring it back to what Y Combinator used to be like or, or a closer version of YC to that. Why would Gary do that? Because Gary went through Y Combinator and uh, Gary actually even says, so Gary, Gary went through Y Combinator, did startups, had an exit, you know, then did his own VC firm called Initialized. And he goes, Initialized and YC are very much aligned. YC made me. He went through YC, did the startup, got acquired by Twitter. Uh, and, but I made Initialized. And here's his uh, tweet. YC gave me my start and I'm deeply, deeply grateful to the community. So Gary went through Y Combinator. You don't think Gary's going to look around at what Y Combinator is saying and say, you know, maybe we shouldn't be so big. Hmm. You know, maybe we should really try and go in person again. Have baby startups, literally, these are like uh, infants, not even toddlers, of businesses. And there's so much to be had from that in-person dynamic, not only for the startup and its team to be working together in the same space, but for, I think a lot of the magic of YC is the connection with other startups that are in your, your group, your cohort, right? There's lifelong relationships that come out of that. Very hard to forge those when you're all on Zoom going through the program together. And, and with now the, the number and size of startups in the program, you're just not going to create the same level of relationship with your team, with other startups, and with the mentors that are coming in, right? Hey, this mentor came in, this like billionaire founder. Well, I'm going to go up to that guy after he talks and, and say, hey, you know, what, 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 right? Those things, you can't do that on the Zoom call. It's those little uh, details and the nuance that gets stripped away. Um, why do you think Steve Jobs in their circular Apple headquarters, this guy obsessed over the headquarters for years, specifically looking at where he placed the bathrooms because he wanted the bathrooms to be placed in such a manner that it would invoke those random encounters. You got other people from different departments bumping into each other in the hallway, going to the bathroom. And he talks about this. You can go look at the clips. He attributes so much of Apple's creativity and their product innovation, particularly in their, in their kind of you know, resurgence, to those just random encounters in the hallway um, for both him personally and for him seeing it with other team members. So uh, Michael Siebel, great guy. I think he genuinely had Y Combinator's interest at heart. I'm not saying he was trying to do bad by them. It was just, frankly, the wrong direction. And I think you'll see me and us proven correctly when Gary takes control in 2023 and starts to roll back a lot of Michael's decisions. And maybe Michael will also be exiting, you know, as Gary comes on board and this stuff. I wouldn't be surprised at that either. Um, so that's the Ivy League State School debate. I think that's going to be coming to a close here over the next, I'd say, nine months. Give Gary like six months in there. So in the past few weeks, you've had Home Depot and Lowe's. Um, they both come out with their earnings. The big takeaway between Home Depot and Lowe's earnings was what was their customer composition? We've talked many times on the show for many months now, probably over a year, on Home Depot's push to get into the professional contractor segment. 
They've bought things like HD Supply. They've rolled out a whole program of contractor tools of investing in infrastructure like flatbed trucks and other parts of their stores to attract this professional community. And what you saw in spades from this earnings season was basically Home Depot's, their split of what they call do-it-yourself, which is kind of individuals doing home improvement projects on their home, and that professional contractor community has put Home Depot in a much better position strategically in a softening market recession as compared to Lowe's. That is because that DIY segment is more sensitive to upswings and downswings in the economy. These are individuals paying for these projects as opposed to that professional community as this is what they do. They are generally always going to find work or much more reliable flow of demand coming from the contractors and the contractors are then hired. They could be doing residential work, but they could also be doing commercial work. They could be doing government work. They could be sourcing their work and their business in a multitude of ways, but that buying predictability is much higher from that professional community than with that individual DIYer homeowner, right? So now all eyes are on Home Depot and what they've been doing to penetrate into this pros uh, and professional contractor market. So put a little chart together. The home improvement retail market for Home Depot, basically $900 billion split equally. $450 billion is the DIY and then $450 billion is the pros. Pretty big numbers. And then we went back and looked at um, Home Depot's, we looked at Home Depot's and Lowe's, their earnings, their transcripts, some stuff that they, you know, they write in, in their earnings reports or presentations, some stuff that they just speak to on the call. We don't have the data exactly for every single year, but we have it pretty close. So we've broken out the share of sales from B2B pros and looked at that from Home Depot versus Lowe's. Lowe's only really started to kind of talk about this in the past few years, which makes sense because it hasn't been as big of a customer mix for Lowe's as Home Depot. Lowe's is at 25% this year of their overall customer mix as compared to Home Depot, who just passed 50%. Uh, it's about 55% this year. So it's actually a majority of their sales are coming from what they call 5% of their customers which are the pros. And, the, and then 45% of their revenue is actually coming from more you know, individual DIYers, the residences, the homeowners. In 2019, Home Depot said they had 45% of sales coming from the, this professional community. 2020 is a little bit fuzzy. COVID, you know, they said a decline. They didn't really rule out exactly where that came in at. And then 2021, up to 50% and now 2022 trending above that, as I mentioned, at 55%. You compare that to Lowe's where they're just now at 25%. Before that, they were in the kind of, you know, 22, 23% range. And then also below that in 2020, those numbers a little bit rougher with when COVID hit and, and how much disclosures they're making on that. So you can see that both it's growing for both parties. And these are Big companies doing a lot of revenue. So these percentage points are worth a lot of money. One of the big things we've talked about that Home Depot has done quite successfully is to uh, 
partner with different digital demand channels, different uh, contractor tools, startups. And so I got a few examples of that. We've done a bunch of other videos that go much deeper into this. So just in the past couple months, in May of 2022, Home Depot announced a $150 million VC fund to, quote, fuel innovation in retail and home improvement. The fund is there to identify, fund, and partner with early stage companies uh, to accelerate emerging technologies that aim to improve the customer experience, shape the future of home improvement. So you can bet you. And then one of the specific bullets is there's two bullets on better serve customers. One is more for DIY. And then the other one is evolve how the professional, the pro customers efficiently manage and grow their businesses, saving them time and money. One great example of this is, and we've covered this many times on the show, is Home Depot's investment in Hover. Home Depot is one of the early investors in Hover. Hover is a roofing technology that for roofing contractors um, and homeowners, you can use this to get a sense for how big your roof is and using augmented reality and other technologies to uh, aid in that process. Hover today has raised a bunch more money. It's worth hundreds of millions of dollars and is actively used and partnered with the top three roofing distributors in the nation. Home Depot has been an early investor in that company for many, many, many years. So Home Depot is getting data on their investment. We don't know to what degree Hover is disclosing what additional volumes they're getting through these new partners, being the top three roofing distributors in the country. But you know that they are getting something. And as well as some other goodies, right? And they've been collaborating for, for many years, much longer than Hover collaborating with the roofing distributors. One more example. Home Depot last fall announces partnership with BuilderTrend. BuilderTrend is a construction project management tool uh, providing construction professionals the technology to help them manage and grow their businesses, along with an integrated purchasing experience and discounts. Home Depot was going to promote the BuilderTrend tool to its contractor and pro and loyalty program community. Home Depot then can better integrate into that uh, purchasing experience on Builder Trend, right? It's a two-way synergy kind of partnership. Um, I don't think Home Depot invested in Builder Trend, but you can see where this direction is going and how there are so many different contractor tools. There are so many different technologies that these contractors need to use, whether it's to run their business, whether it's to finance their supplies, whether it's to just logistically get the stuff from point A to point B or any number of other situations, that technology is actively sprouting up to try and solve those needs. And Home Depot has been playing in that space for years. They're doubling, if not tripling down with this $150 million VC fund, which, oh yeah, that's right, Amazon just launched a billion dollar VC fund specifically focused on the supply chain, um, all within just a couple of weeks of each other. So Going back to this analysis between Home Depot and Lowe's, would not be surprised if Lowe's is looking at doing something similar. How is Lowe's going to better partner with technology startups that are catering to the needs of its customers in this area, the pros, as more and more folks, not just retailers, 
but also manufacturers and marketplace disruptors are trying to penetrate into B2B distribution. That's what this is. Who are these, who are these professionals customers of otherwise? B2B distributors. This is a direct affront to B2B distribution. Who is the other key investor in Hover in addition to Home Depot? Standard Industries, which owns GAF, which is one of the big roofing manufacturers. Both of these forces are squeezing and pushing on B2B distribution, and it's time for B2B distributors to stand up, fight back, and win. This segment, we're gonna look at Reed Hoffman and we're gonna look at Zuckerberg. Both tech billionaires, both venturing into waters that frankly, we don't want them in and they shouldn't be playing in. But these guys have created dominant social networks, Reed Hoffman, LinkedIn, Zuckerberg, Facebook. Hoffman was an early investor in Facebook, made a bunch of money there. They are infringing upon our civil liberties on a day-to-day -day basis. And you know, you read and now you watch the, the interviews with these guys, you know, you, you, you look at them, they're billionaires, been so successful in business and technology, and you say, oh, wow, these guys are smart. They are smart. But they're also kind of stupid, too. They're very smart to build technology and to build new disruptive businesses. Yes. But are they actually that smart in terms of how to govern society and what's right for people? And Do they actually have the best track record managing and building a team of their own? So are these tech geniuses actually that smart? I don't think so. Or maybe rather, these tech geniuses actually aren't that smart when it comes to these other parts of society and people. Ironic, right? Since they built social network companies. But let's look at this recent interview with Reid Hoffman. He wrote a book called Blitz, Blitz Scaling. Blitzscaling was published in 2018. It literally says the whole point of the book is scale at all costs. Growth is all that matters, including you can be a horrible boss and a horrible manager, and it still doesn't matter as long as you have growth. It's literally a chapter from the book, not making it up. Anyway, he's got a whole chapter about Scale at all costs, it's all that matters. The people, the management, you can figure that all out. It doesn't really matter. Culture, whatever, you just gotta scale. If you have the growth, everything else will get figured out. You can hire people and they can figure that stuff out for you. That's his book. And so, you know, they do an interview with him. They being the information, Silicon Valley media. Um, they talk about him and they say, oh, I don't think there's anything foolish, right? Now this is since we work, this is since you know, all the stuff about Uber and the mismanagement of Uber and Travis Kalanick being exited, right? And all these things. Now, a bunch of other stories of companies that have essentially blitz scaled, done a bunch of things wrong, lost a bunch of investors' money, things that Reed has invested in as well. But no, you know, there's nothing foolish about blitz scaling. Uh, he regrets nothing except maybe SPACs, right? But, but this article and the interview with Reed has nothing around these areas that certainly come much more in, into the limelight in the past few years since he published this book and kind of the fervor around Silicon Valley was 
all still very positive. Just in the past few years, that, that tone has changed quite dramatically, which is a good thing. But no, no regrets. And the media does nothing to push back on Reed. Like you, you listen and you read the interview. It's nothing tough. It's nothing saying like, really, Reed? You don't think, you know, getting management or culture, making sure people aren't harassed and all these things like, you don't think that's super important to a company's success, Reed? Really? Nothing? No. They just skim by it. They make fun of it. Oh, ha, ha, ha. Reed doesn't think he should have any second guesses about blitzscaling. Ridiculous, right? And this is the guy who was CEO twice of LinkedIn, right? Very influential, founded a bunch of, uh, invested in a bunch of other companies, doing a bunch of other activities with his money. But no, no. Nothing wrong with blitzscaling. Nothing. Um, hmm. Is he actually the right person that you would want because his technology is so big, so influential, so, you know, at monopoly scale? Think about the kinds of decisions that these two people, Reed and Zuckerberg, who I'm going to get to in a second, and the impact that they make. And are they, I don't want this guy making decisions for me. Let's go to Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg just did this Joe Rogan interview. And just like, I've got a few clips here and then I've got a longer clip, which is um, when Joe asked him about content moderation. But just you listen to these clips and you look at the control that these tech monopolies have on society, like freedom of speech. And clearly these tech monopolies are uh, silencing our ability to speak freely on the internet. Yet because the media is so scared of challenging these people, and because the media, the regulators, our regulators, our legislators, are either some mixture of scared and just frankly paid off and bought off, we are losing in the fight to rein in these content monopolies. Finally, Joe Rogan at least asks a few questions uh, that catch Zuckerberg, and let's go over those. So you'll be able to have this experience in the future where, like, you're sitting in a meeting um, and you know, your wife texts you and it pops up in the corner of your glasses and you want to respond, but you don't want to, like, pull out your phone because that's kind of rude, right? Um, so you just kind of, like, I don't know, twitch your wrist a little bit, maybe like this, like some super discreet motion um, that no one even knows you're doing it and you just, like, send a message. And... That seems like a massive distraction. I mean, people are already distracted by their phones. Like when people well, get a text message and they're like, hang on a second, I just can't answer this real quick. And you're like, okay. And you're sitting there having lunch with someone and they're not talking to you anymore because they're looking at their phone. But now they're going to be looking at these AR glasses and just thinking out text messages. And you won't, you won't even know that they're distracted. They're just going to be not connecting with you. I don't know. I actually think... <laughs> Right. The moment he gets challenged, Zuckerberg, oh, I don't know. Hmm. Mm. No response. No one is challenging these, these founders, these CEOs. And, you know, they have these ideas. Everyone just agrees with them for a variety of reasons. And they need to be challenged. You know why? Because they're not actually that smart. Not as smart as they're purported to be. We're going to go to the big one in a second. This one I thought was hilarious. 
I don't like the way you sip water, though. When you're sipping water What's in the up? Senate, you're sipping water like a robot. I mean, Let yeah. me see you take a real drink. I mean. Go ahead. Ah, like a I mean, honestly, person. those. <laughs> that was great. He's poking him. Who's poking Zuckerberg like that, really? Okay, now let's go to this one. That's like, all right. You wake up in the morning, look at my phone. You get like a million messages, right, of, of stuff that come in. It's usually not good, right? It's I mean, people people like <laughs> people reserve the good stuff to tell me in person, right? Right. Um, so, but it's it's like okay, what's going on in the world that I need to kind of pay attention to that day? No one can challenge these people, right? He said it even right there. Yeah, they reserve the good stuff to tell me in person, but they they tell me the bad stuff digitally because we don't know how to actually interact as humans anymore. <laughs> I mean. It's hilarious. He's actually, you know, he's, he's saying this in jest, but there's a lot of truth to this. Who is actually challenging Mark Zuckerberg and saying, you know what? We shouldn't be silencing people to the degree that we are, right? Like maybe, hey, hey Mark, maybe we're being too aggressive on this. He talks about this more in my, in my next clip, but no one is really challenging these mega billionaires at all the, in their own companies. The media, regulators, legislators. So it's it's almost like every day you wake up and you're like punched in the stomach. And then it's like, okay, well, fuck. Now I need to like go reset myself and be able to kind of be productive and not be stressed about this. So how do I do that? So I basically, I go, I like, I, I read, I take in all the information and um, and then I go do something physical for an hour or two and, and just kind of reset myself. Good. I'm glad every morning he wakes up says, oh, why am I still CEO of Facebook? Love to see him leave. Okay, there's a bunch of good things in this one. When we take down something that, that we're not supposed to, I mean, that, that is like, oh, I, I mean, that's the worst. I mean, how that's do you like, discern? Like, how, like, say, like, these Christian Facebook pages, I, I don't know how they found out that 19 of 20 were fake. But if someone just says, I am Bob Smith, and mm -hmm. they post as Bob Smith, and they have a photograph, and they, but really what they're doing is trying to uh, talk shit about Joe Biden and get people to vote Republican in the midterms. Like, how, what, how do you know whether someone's real or not? Like, this is the big argument with Elon mm -hmm. and Twitter, because Elon asked Twitter, like, what percentage of your yeah. website is filled with bots? And they say 5%, and he says, I don't believe you. I think it's higher. And let's find out how you've come to this conclusion. Yeah. And, you know, they're, uh, I believe they said that they just took a hundred random Twitter pages and looked at the interaction and there's some sort of yeah. an algorithm they applied to it. But how do you discern? Yeah. So, I mean, I think estimating the overall prevalence is, is one thing, but I think that the question of you know, looking at a page and is this page authentic? So you conveniently deflected how many spam fake users there are on Facebook. But yes, let's continue. I think that there's a bunch of signals around that. One of the things that we try to do is for large pages, we try to make sure that we know who the admin of that page is. We don't necessarily, if you should be able to run an anonymous page. You don't necessarily need to out yourself and say who you are running it. But we want to make sure that we sort of have like an identity for that person on file so that way we know, it, it, like at least behind the scenes, that that person is real. Um, for certain political things, I think having a sense of what country they're originating from, I mean, some of that you can do just by looking at where their server traffic comes from, like is the IP address coming from Romania or, you know, is or mm -hmm. um, 
I, because if it, if it's like an ad in some other country's election, then you know you probably want to make sure that that ad is is um, you know especially in countries that have laws around that are are like are coming from someone who's a valid citizen or yeah. like at least in that place. So there, there's a bunch of I think. I don't one one theme in my worldview around this stuff, and when it gets to some of the stuff that we talked about before, is like I don't think that this stuff is black and white, or that you're ever going to have like a perfect AI system. Um, I think it's all trade-offs all the way down, right? And it's and and you you could either you could build a system, and you can either be overly aggressive and capture a higher percent of the bad guys, but then also by accident take out some number of good guys, or you could be a little more lenient and um, say, okay. No, the cost of taking out any number of good guys is too high, so we're going to tolerate having, you know, just a, a little bit more, like more bad guys on the on the system. These are values questions, right? Yeah. Around what what do you value more? Um, and and those are those are super tricky questions. And he's lying. There are platforms that do exactly what he described. Right? Hey, we don't want to take down good guys, as Zuckerberg puts it. We want to take down content when it violates a law, when it's you know threatening someone's safety, um, when law enforcement contacts us, right about something. Okay, and there are my five horsemen. You know my alternative social media platforms. Some are more like YouTube alternatives. Some are more like Facebook alternatives. Go check out our video where we highlight all those alternative uh, social media platforms. And a bunch of them have been uh, and are actively deplatformed by Apple and Google on the app stores. They're competed against unfairly by Google. Rumble is currently suing Google uh, for this very reason. And so there are platforms that have decided to say when it comes to content censorship, we aren't going to do it. Right? Like we're going to take down harmful content that breaks the rule of law. But otherwise, if it's fake news, but it's not violating a law, that's fair game. And those companies that have made those decisions have been penalized by the big tech monopolies. Part of what I've struggled with around this is I didn't get into this to basically judge those things. I got into this to design technology that helps people connect, right? It's like, mm-hmm. and, and like, I mean, you could probably tell when we spent the first hour talking about the metaverse and the future of basically building this whole technology roadmap to basically give people this realistic sense of presence. It's like, that's what I'm here to do, right? Um, So this whole thing that's like arbitrating what is okay and what is not, I I obviously have to be involved in that because this is at some level, you know, I run the company and and I, I can't just abdicate that. But seriously, leave. We'll all be better off without you. But I, I also don't think that as a matter of governance, you want all of that decision-making vested in one individual. So I think one of the things that you know, our country and our government gets right is the separation of powers. So you know, one of the things that I tried to create is we created this oversight board. It's an independent board where, that basically we, we appointed people whose kind of paramount value is free expression, but they also val- balance that with things like when is there going to be real harm to others? But there um, isn't. Of- Actually, the separation of powers doesn't exist because now there are multiple multiple scenarios that we know about, which means there's a myriad of other ones that we don't know about, where you have different government agencies 
collaborating and influencing the tech monopolies to take down and censor and silence certain information. Zuckerberg goes on to talk about one which no one knew about, which was actually the FBI influencing Facebook. We have talked about on this show the role of you know, the CDC and the WHO influencing what can and cannot be said on Facebook, particularly during the height of COVID. Um, still happening today, though. The White House directly influencing specific people, their status on the platforms, and, as well as topics. Now you have more information about the FBI. We also have talked about on the show the SEC being vindictive towards an alternative platform startup, content platform startup. We had the founder of that company, Jeremy Kaufman, on the show, CEO of Library, talk about the gag order that the SEC issued on them, prevented them from raising money for three years. Couldn't tell anyone about it either. So actually, this separation doesn't exist. And that to me is the really interesting thing. If you think about what's happening in this country and how the fact that you know we live in the book 1984 now, it's no longer fiction, the thought police are real. And, but if you think about how there's always been government and media trying to control and influence opinion for, they, for their own benefit or for their, you know, their puppet master's own benefit. What is the difference now? in the 21st century. That's the tech monopolies. That's the, th the third stool to this, the third leg of the stool here. That's the difference. This has been going on for decades. Government, media, um, lobbyists and the like trying to get their way and influence people. But now you have the tech monopolies, which are such a dominant and forceful part of that equation. And then you got these guys, Zuckerberg and Reed Hoffman, that frankly have no idea what they're doing. No one elected them. No one said, yeah, I would like Zuckerberg to figure out a system and use his value system as he's describing it to figure out what I can or cannot talk about on the internet. And when you run a content platform monopoly, which Facebook is a monopoly, just like Google is a monopoly, Apple is a monopoly, you are affecting free speech. That is not what should happen. He talks about the separation. Separation doesn't exist. What should happen is you go by laws and our civil rights. And when you, as the platform, violate those, you get penalized. Poland has done a great job on this. We've done a uh, series of videos on what Poland has done to penalize the platform when the platform unfairly silences creators and content creators in Poland. Go check out that video. We also have a bunch of videos, great interview with this professor uh, from UCLA talking about how you could label uh, these tech monopolies common carriers on a state level. And if you think about uh, AT&T and Ma Bell, you know, imagine if you're using phone service 50 years ago and, and AT&T kicks you off because you're talking about something on the phone AT&T doesn't agree with. Oh, well, that's not okay. And, that is be, and they couldn't do that. They get in big trouble. And that is from this common carrier classification. So we also have a video with Eugene Volokov, I think is his name. Uh, go check out that video as well. But let's go back to Zucky. 
our thought police uh, dictator in control here. Of safety or privacy or other other human rights issues, and and basically that board, people in our community can appeal cases to when they think that we got it wrong, and that board actually gets to make the final binding decision, not us. So, in a way, someone should silence Zuckerberg because he is spewing fake news all over the internet. This is not true. That uh, independent advisory board does not have the ultimate say. We've covered this on our show. Let's go to the clip. This is from May 2021. This is about uh, this independent advisory board and the decision about whether or not President Trump should be kicked off of Facebook. I think that Zuckerberg actually has control of the company anymore. I think there are so many people uh, that are radicalized inside of these companies that have an agenda against whatever it is, crypto, religion, uh, you know, political ideologies. And it is now too big for Zuckerberg to even control. And so really what this oversight board did is they just kicked it back to Facebook. And, and they said here, the group criticized Facebook for seeking to avoid its responsibilities by giving Mr. Trump the indeterminate and standardless penalty of indefinite suspension. They punted it back to Facebook and said, you need to make a final verdict in the next six months. Kind of saying you can either reinstate him, suspend him for a finite period, or bar him permanently. Kind of seems like they have barred him permanently, so maybe this is more of just a nuanced thing. They clearly don't want to be the target of all the wrath. So Zuckerberg punts it to the oversight board. The oversight board punts it back to, to Facebook. We go around in a little merry-go-round circle. People just forget and move on. Let's be perfectly clear. It's absolutely inappropriate. The 45th president of the United States was ever kicked off of these social media platforms. And, and certainly still is banned from these social media platforms. And... What makes us any better than communist Russia or communist China? The values that we hold so dearly, freedom, freedom of speech, uh, personal liberty, all these different ways that that value has been communicated over hundreds of years are being violated to such a great degree by these tech monopolies, right? That's the thing that's different this time around is that the tech monopoly has such great influence to silence and control and influence and affect opinion. These forces have been going on for a long time, but now that's why I think it's been kicked into overdrive. And when you and I know a bunch of other people out there just feel like, wow, you know, feels like our fundamental liberties have been encroached upon so aggressively in such a fast period of time. It's because these tech monopolies have so much power that, that these moves and that pendulum can swing so fast, so much faster uh, than in prior cycles of this throughout history. Let's go back to that police in chief. I actually think that that is a more legitimate form of governance than having just a team internally that makes these decisions or, you know, maybe some of them go up to me, although I don't spend a ton of my time on, on, on this on a day-to-day -day basis. But like, 
I think it's generally good to have some kind of separation of powers where you're architecting the governance so that way you you have different stakeholders and different people who can make these decisions and it's not just like one private company that's making um, decisions even about what just happens on our platform. But it is one private company that's making probably 99.99% of the decision. The oversight board is like 20 people. They do this thing part-time. I don't even know if they're paid, certainly not anything too material to be on this. They're seeing 0.00001% of cases. And on the ones that are really controversial, they just, you know, there's, there's just this constant back and forth. They just point at Facebook, Facebook points at them. Oh, what do we do? But Facebook has literally hired tens of thousands of people, full-time employees, and now outside contractors to thought police. This is their entire job. They get paid to be the thought police. They get paid to take down and silence content. More examples from Zuckerberg right here. How do you guys handle things when they're a, a big news item that's controversial? Like there was a lot of attention on Twitter during the election because of the Hunter Biden laptop story, the New York Post. Yeah, we Post. had that too. Yeah, so you guys censored that as well? So we took a different path than Twitter. Um, I mean, basically the background here is the FBI, I think basically came to us, uh, some, some folks on our team, and was like, hey, um, just so you know, like you should be on high alert. There was, the, we, we thought that there was a lot of Russian propaganda in the 2016 election. We have it on notice that basically there's about to be some kind of dump of, of um, uh, uh, that's similar to that. So just be vigilant. So our protocol is different from Twitter's. What Twitter did is they said, you can't share this at all. Um, we didn't do that. What, what we do is we have, um, if something is reported to us as potentially um, misinformation, important misinformation, we, we also have this third-party fact-checking program because we don't want to be deciding what's true and false. And for the, I think it was five or seven days when it was basically being, um, being determined whether it was false, um, the distribution on Facebook was decreased, but people were still allowed to share it. So you could still share it. You could still consume it. So when um, you say the distribution is decreased, in, it, it got shared. It, how does that work? It basically the ranking in newsfeed was a little bit less. So fewer people saw it than would have otherwise. So it definitely by what percentage? I, I don't know off the top of my head, but it's 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 meaningful. But I mean, but basically the guy's just full of lies, right? It's like oh. Yeah, it's just a little suppressed in the rankings. And then later on he goes, yeah, it's, it's, it's meaningful suppression. And so many points in just these like 30 seconds of clip. One, what we've been talking about on the show, that Twitter is just completely off the rails. Proven correct by Zuckerberg, right? Twitter, is, he's basically saying, hey, Twitter was overly zealous on this, got way too aggressive, they, they took it down. They banned the New York Post from Twitter. It wouldn't allow you to share the link at all. We're banning you if you were even talking about it, right? Twitter's crazy, right? Which is why I am totally supportive of the fact that every little bit of pain and lawsuit coming at Jack Dorsey and his band of stooges is entirely deserved. And they've committed acts of fraud on multiple occasions, particularly around the spam bot issue. Anyway. Go watch that video if you want to see that topic. Separate thing, though. Back to this. Zuckerberg is also saying, oh, well, we didn't do that. All we did was basically shadow ban anyone talking about this. Now, that's also not true. Now, on the Washington Post, 
owned by Jeff Bezos. Former Facebook security chief Alex Stamos said that in retrospect, the platforms overreacted against the New York Post coverage. This is interesting. Stamos said the companies were in a no-win situation. Twitter took more aggressive action. Zuckerberg said, hey, if you shared the link, then, you know, if you shared the story, we would shadow ban you. But that's not all they did. They actually modified the post, right? They would say, hey, uh, we placed Facebook placed restrictions on linking to the article, saying there are questions about its validity. Right. So this is when you look at something and they say, oh, well, you know, they, they put the information thing. They or you now if you want to post it, you want to share it, they give you a pop up. They're not just you do a post and then I limit its visibility, which is what Zuckerberg said they did. But it's actually now modifying the, the, the actual post itself, demotivating you to actually do the post at all or share the article at all. Right. They're giving you extra prompts. They're all, every one of those little subtle actions has a huge influence over human behavior and how you behave and, and what you want to post. Are you scared? Oh, well, maybe Facebook is going to kick me off if I post this because they're giving me a warning, right? What we got to remember is this had never happened before, right? And like these, these content platform monopolies had been uh, kicking off and banning users for years leading up to this. But it, this isn't even two years old, where now, you know, entire news organizations in the New York Post, who is like over 100 years old, is being completely deplatformed, right? And that now gets normalized in just not even two years' time. And so it's important that we continue to recognize the way these platforms are behaving is not appropriate. And on Zuckerberg's scale of what's, <coughs> you know, of, he says, oh, it's a values question. No, no, no. It's not a values question for you, Zuckerberg. We have laws, we have rights. Those laws and those rights supersede your moral compass, which I don't trust one iota. And Rogan also asked Zuckerberg about Removing the algorithm. Or it has too much impact on people. Better solution would be to just let everything exist how it exists. Don't have any kind of algorithm. Let people find what they find and share what they share. Yeah, so we actually started there. If you don't do any kind of ranking, the system gets gamed in different ways. The most recent stuff shows up at the top. You get a bunch of businesses that want to make sure that you see their stuff, so they just post constantly. They post like 50 times a day. You miss, obviously, really important stuff. My cousin is pregnant, and when she has a baby, she's going to post about that, and like that post better be at the top of my feed because I don't want to miss that. You know, he goes to a super simplistic version or interpretation of what Joe is asking. Joe's not a tech wizard, but it's a very valid question. Hey, what would happen if there was less algorithm? Or, hey, Zuckerberg... Could you actually give me multiple options to have different kinds of algorithms as opposed to there just being one matchmaking algorithm and you guys choose what the newsfeed looks like, right? Could you open that up? Could you allow other third parties to create their own matchmaking? Hmm? Or could you at least uh, provide visibility into how you're doing the matchmaking? Of course not. They would never do that. Could you give me just a simplistic uh, view, right? If you... It, 
If you go to other of the alternative social media platforms, they have multiple ways, right? I mean, just think about um, on Amazon, right? There's just multiple ways that you can sort the page. Um, other social media platforms, the alternative ones will say, well, here's the trending feed, here's the hot feed, you know, here's the uh, most liked feed. There's different ways that you could provide filtering. Some could be more automated and less automated. Some could be more simplistic and more advanced. Some could be more controlled by Facebook and less controlled by Facebook. But, you know, to just revert to answering Joe Rogan's question as to how you manage Facebook 10 years ago when you introduced a newsfeed because businesses do a lot of posts. The guy is just very disingenuous. And so we should not feel bad for him. When he wakes up in the morning, it feels like he's getting punched in the gut. That's phenomenal. That's great. He's got many billions of dollars to make himself sleep better at night. Unfortunately, he doesn't actually surround himself with people who challenge him. And he's leading a company which is an echo chamber. Um, and has real, real issues with loving to thought police and silence free speech around the world. Very unfortunate. These two interviews, I think, did a really good job kind of exposing, you know, th these guys aren't some deity. They're not some, you know, all-knowing genius or wizard. They shouldn't be having this power. They shouldn't be making the decisions that they're making, and they're doing a horrible job really doing a disservice to the country and, and the moral fabric and the values that this country was founded upon. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you very much for joining us. I'll talk to you soon.